Now we give a warm welcome to everyone joining with us for public worship this evening, both those in the building here and those who are joining with us online. Let's begin our worship by singing to God's praise in Psalm 139. It's page 432 of the Psalter. Psalm 139 at the beginning. O Lord, Thou hast me searched and known. Thou knowest my sitting down and rising up. Yea, all my thoughts afar to Thee are known. My footsteps and my lying down Thou compassest always. Thou also most entirely art acquaint with all my ways. We'll sing verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 139. O Lord, thou hast me searched and known. Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, help us to listen to these songs as we sing them, because they contain profound truths. They contain truths that we would never discover in and of ourselves. You are the God who searches us, and you are the God who 
knows us. And we can look back to times in our lives when our biggest problem was that we knew that you knew everything. And that was a profound difficulty. But that same truth is a tremendous comfort for the people of God when they embrace you in faith and they go through the difficulties of life's journey and yet to know that God knows everything is a solace and is a comfort. And may we remind ourselves in the words of that song that you know are rising up and are lying down. These are intimate things that nobody else but close family know about. But they are known to you. And unlike family, you know our every thought as well as every word and every deed. And great mystery in this, but we believe it because you've said it. You know the words that we are going to utter before we have uttered them. We cannot comprehend that. That is beyond our understanding. But we do remind ourselves that we are finite and limited creatures. You are infinite and you are unlimited. And we bow before your revelation this night. O Lord our God, in a day of profound beauty like this, as we survey your creation, it reminds us that not only are you a powerful God who brought into being this vast universe, but you are a God of great creativity and beauty as well. This is an astonishing world that you have molded and fashioned. But it is marred. It is seriously marred. And we are the mar, because we are the orchestrators of sin. But this day not only reminds us, this one day in seven set aside by you, not only reminds us that you are the creator, it reminds us also, thankfully, that you are the redeemer. We are here this day because for 33 years, God was manifest in the flesh and dwelt among us on this planet, became part of the flow of the human race. Not in our wildest dreams could we have imagined something like that, but we know it because you have revealed it to us. And not only do we look back on this day as a marker of your creative and redemptive work, but it points forward to your second coming when there shall be a new heaven and a new earth. O Lord, our God, we pray that we would all be part of your new heaven and your new earth. We do give thanks for family bonds. We give thanks for everyone here this night and we remember also those of our family members who are absent for whatever reason. We give thanks also for the unborn in our midst at this moment. Bless them too. And our earnest prayer is that in the great beyond, the family units that you have given to us would be unbroken. Because we have all trusted in you as our own friend and saviour. We have been reminded as a congregation once again of how swiftly death can come. 
Just a handful of days ago, we were attending a barbecue with Angus McLean. Little did we think that that, for many of us, would be the last time we would see him. But it's a reminder to us that we know not the moment, we know not the hour. And it is a warning to us that we must watch and be ready. O Lord our God, please help us all to watch and be ready. And we pray for Angus's family as they mourn the loss of a loved one. Be with them in all that lies ahead. And we remember the Archard family in Muravord as they mourn the loss of a loved one. We thank you for all the years of service Roddy gave you in the congregation through there. We thank you for his example in life. We realize that for many who will never read a Bible, what they will read is the life and the conduct of a believer. And we do give thanks for Roddy's example. And we pray for the family in the midst of their loss. Be a blessing to them and gather them all unto yourself. We remember those who would be here with us tonight if they could but who cannot. And as they join us in a limited kind of way, may they know a blessing as well. We remember all who are absent due to holidays at this time. May they come back to us refreshed in body and in soul. And we remember those who are visiting with us this evening. Be a blessing to them also. We pray that you would be with us now for this time of worship. And wherever your church is gathered across the globe this day, whether it's in the past few hours or in the future few hours, may you be in the midst uh, to, uh, to bless. So be with us, we pray. And enable us to worship in spirit and in truth. Enable us to worship in a way that is acceptable to God. And all we ask is in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's continue to sing to God's praise in the same song, Psalm 139. It's page 432 of the Psalter and it's at verse 7. From thy spirit, whither shall I go? Or from thy presence fly, ascend I heaven. Lo, thou art there, there, if in hell I lie. Take I the morning wings and dwell in utmost parts of sea. Even there, Lord, shall thy hand me lead, thy right hand hold shall me. Verses 7 to 12 of Psalm 139. From thy spirit whither shall I go?
Now let's read God's Word. First of all, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis and at chapter 42. And we'll read at the beginning of the chapter. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain from, for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered to them, 
Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder on the way, on, 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 and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my grey hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And we'll read uh, secondly, also in the Old Testament, but I'm going to read it from the Scottish uh, metrical version because that's the version that we probably know uh, best of all, and that's in Psalm number. 25. We'll read the first verse in page 231 of the Psalter. To thee I lift my soul, O Lord, I trust in thee. My God, let me not be ashamed, nor foes triumph o'er me. Let none that wait on thee be put to shame at all. But those that without cause transgress, let shame 
upon them fall. Show me thy ways, O Lord, thy paths, O teach thou me, and do thou lead me in thy truth, therein my teacher be. For thou art God that dost to me salvation send, and I upon thee all the day expecting do attend. Thy tender mercies, Lord, I pray thee to remember, and loving kindnesses, for they have been of old for ever. My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. After thy mercy think on me, and for thy goodness great. God good and upright is, the way he'll sinners show, the meek and judgment he will guide and make his path to know. The whole paths of the Lord are truth and mercy sure to those that do his covenant keep and testimonies pure. Now, for thine own name's sake, O Lord, I thee entreat to pardon mine iniquity, for it is very great. What man is he that fears the Lord and doth him serve? Shall he teach the way that he shall choose and still observe? His soul shall dwell at ease, and his posterity shall flourish still, and of the earth inheritors shall be. With those that fear him is the secret of the Lord, the knowledge of his covenant he will to them afford. Mine eyes upon the Lord continually are set, for he it is that shall bring forth my feet out of the net. Turn unto me thy face, and to me mercy show, because that I am desolate and am brought very low. My heart's griefs are increased, me from distress relieve, see mine affliction and my pain, and all my sins forgive. Consider thou my foes, because they many are, and it a cruel hatred is which they against me bear. O oh, do thou keep my soul, do thou deliver me, and let me never be ashamed, because I trust in thee. Let uprightness and truth keep me who thee attend, redemption, Lord, to Israel, from all his troubles ascend. Amen, and may God bless to us these uh, readings from his word. Let's join together again in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we do give thanks for just how honest this book before us is, even in this very song that we have been reading. There is a whole spectrum of situations and emotions from elation and rejoicing to dejection, despondency, the facing up to enemies, the acceptance that sin in their own experience is great. But may we remember this, that we by nature are not concerned with sin. It's no big deal. But when the Spirit of God comes into the life of a human being. It turns everything on its head and sin becomes ugly and great. 
But we thank you that alongside that insight there comes an insight into the massiveness of the grace that there is in Christ. And we thank you for the loving kindness that's spoken of in the songs of praise in the Bible. We thank you for your tender mercies. And it is for that reason and that reason alone that we are here this night. We are not better than others. We are not superior. Indeed, it's the very opposite. It's because we have realized the enormity of our rebellion and the hopelessness of our sinfulness that we have fled to you seeking mercy. We thank you that those who seek it shall find it. And we pray that as we seek to explore afresh something of this particular song this evening, that you would be in our midst to help us. Remember us. Remember our loved ones, wherever they may be across the globe this night. Have mercy upon all of us. And gather us all into yourself. And all we ask is in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's sing again to God's praise. This time it's Psalm 139a, and that's found on page 181 of the Psalter. It's at verse 13. Psalm 139a at verse 13. For you, O Lord, created me. You wove me on your loom. My inmost being you have formed within my mother's womb. Because I'm wonderfully made with all your praise I tell. Your workmanship is marvellous, and this I know full well. We'll sing verses 13 uh, to uh, 16 of Psalm um, 139a. For you, O Lord, created me.
Now let's turn to uh, the passage that we've read in uh, the book of Psalms at Psalm 20, Psalm 25. Again we'll read from uh, the Scottish Psalter, Psalm 25 and uh, at verse 7. My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. After thy mercy think on me, and for thy goodness great. Now let's, by God's enabling, seek to explore something of this area of Scripture. We've been looking at this psalm for some time now, and uh, we just remind ourselves that this psalm is about real worship. It's about soul worship. And I think I said this morning, you know, we are very good at pretending to ourselves. We are very good at pretending to others. And we are very good and very foolish at trying to pretend with God. And the foolishness in trying to pretend with God is this, in that we can get off with pretending to other people, and we can get off with pretending to ourselves. There isn't the remotest chance of us getting off with it when it comes to God. And we cannot get off with it when it comes to God for the very reasons that we've been singing in the song that we've been singing this evening in Psalm 139. This is the God that theologians tell us is omniscient. What does omniscient mean? He knows absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. And the strange thing is this. He knows every word that I'm going to utter this night before I have even uttered them myself. That is a profound mystery. But that is what he reveals to us from his word. And we believe him because his word is his revelation to uh, the, the human race. And of course we are here tonight, as I said in my prayer, not because we're superior, not because we're better than anybody else. You know, some people would say of us this night that we are here because we think we're a cut above. That we are here because we think we're good people and these good and in inverted commas people go to church. I hope that's not the reason or the thinking in the minds of any of us here this night. Rather, we are here because we know something of what we really are. And not only do we know something of what we really are, we know something of the absolute hopelessness of our condition because of who we are. We are here because we are sinners. But we are also here because God has done something about the plight of sinners. And we are here not because we are better or even good in any shape or form. But we are here because we have seen ourselves as even worse than other people might consider us to be. We are here because there is no hope for us whatsoever outside of the mercy of, uh, of God. And we are here to hopefully uh, be engaged in this worship that is honouring to God. And any worship that is honouring to God must listen to what he says to us in his truth. And his truth is contained within this book that we know of as the Bible. But not only do we need that, 
We must worship God, yes, in his truth, but we must worship God in spirit as well. In other words, it's got to be soul worship. And so the psalmist says, to thee I lift my soul. And when we were exploring these things, we looked at the various aspects of our souls, an intellectual capacity, an emotional capacity, and a volitional capacity. All of these things are involved. Now, it's not that an unsaved soul doesn't have these faculties. It does. But a saved soul has these things to an even greater degree, we might say. And they're all pulled into focus and pulled into play. And God is worshipped in a correct and proper and God-honouring way. And it is an astonishing thing indeed that human beings like ourselves could so stir the heart of the eternal God as to cause God to be well pleased. Now we wouldn't dare think of that if we were left to conjure it up in our wild imaginations and in our dreams. We wouldn't dare go near that. So why do we? We do because God has revealed it to us on the pages of Holy Writ. When Noah came out of that ark and he engaged in that act of worship, he was a man who had listened to God as God revealed things to him and Noah fell in line with God. And Noah gave to God what God was looking for. Let's remember this. It was a devastating scene that Noah cast his eye over. Everything was gone. Everything bar these animals on board the ark. But everything of the human race was gone bar eight souls. That was a devastating sight. And, you know, Noah could have reasoned away like this. Do you know what? I've only got seven of every clean animal around. I need these seven to repopulate planet Earth. I can't afford to waste or squander any of them. But that's not the way he thought. Because he knew what kind of worship God was looking for. And he gave to God what God was due and so he sacrificed some of these clean animals. And you know what we read? It was as a pleasing aroma in the presence of God. Noah gave to God what God commanded of him. But Noah did not give it begrudgingly or in a niggardly way. He gladly gave it to God. And that's an insight into this truth, that we can delight the heart of God. Now, of course, the opposite is true. There was a time in Old Testament history when God was looking at his temple, the temple that he designed and the temple that he gave to his covenant people, and there was so much ritual going on and there was an abundance of sacrifice. 
And God found it all an abomination. It was outward. It was the ritual. But there was no heart. There was no soul in it. And hopefully tonight we are here and we have listened to what God has to say. We know what his truth is. But also we are engaging our souls and every aspect and faculty of our souls in seeking to worship him. But the psalmist is very open and upfront about who he is and what he is. Sin to him is a great thing. But he keeps coming back in this song and in many other songs of scripture and indeed right throughout the Old Testament which was written in the Hebrew language to this great word chesed. And that's the word that's involved in this very text that we're looking at uh, tonight because the psalmist says, My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget after thy mercy, after thy chesed, think on me, and for thy goodness uh, great. And this word chesed reminds us that we have zero input into our salvation. Now, of course, that needs qualified. We are the ones that need to believe God. We need to listen to him and we believe him. But that's it. If we believe him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. On the basis of what? On the basis of chesed. What's chesed? It's utter and absolutely gift. That's what it is. And here's where we make a major mistake so often. You know, we are hardwired to this idea of salvation by works. We've got this idea, yes, 90% of it will be of God's grace, but I must put in 10% or 5% or even 2% myself. That's not the way chesed works. That's not the way it works. It is 100% a gift. It is 100% the graciousness of God. And you know, if I was to ask you this question tonight, tell me this. How do you know you're going to be saved at the end of the day? Because let's be honest about this. Sometimes we reflect, sometimes as a reflection about ourselves, it's a self-analysis. And we are encouraged in Scripture to self-analyze. But how do you get on when you self-analyze? Let's say it's a communion season and uh, we remind ourselves of this, let a man examine himself. And it's a generic use of the word man, men, women, children. Let a person examine themselves. And so let them eat and drink. Now so often when we do that self-analysis, we sink to the lowest depths. Why? Because we are who we are. That's, that's why. Because we are who we are. And you see the danger at these moments is this. Is to take our eyes off Christ. Or let me put it another way. To take our eye off the word of God as he reveals things to us. And we completely sink. We are under the water. And that's where we should be if it's only our sin we are looking at. But we are not meant to, as believers, take our eye off Christ. Now, I'm not saying 
that we should bury our heads and we shouldn't self-analyze it. I'm not saying that at all. We should keep an eye on who we are and who we really are. And that's pretty depressing stuff. But we should keep another eye on who Christ is and what he has done. And what is it that Christ has said about this faith that saves any believer? This is what he says, it's a gift of God. Everything offered is a gift. Now let's remember this. It's not God who does the believing when he bestows the gift of faith. It's the believer. We are the ones who have to exercise uh, that faith. He gives us that a gift. We are the ones who have to believe. And sometimes our faith is like the faith of John the Baptist that we were looking at this morning. Art thou the Christ? Or should we look for another? We wobble. And if we have faith that wobbles at times, how then do we know we're going to be saved? Do we just think, well, I might be saved, I might not be saved. I may be saved, I may not be saved. How do you, how do you resolve that kind of issue? The resolution to that issue is found in the same place as the resolution to every question that comes up in a Christian's experience. It goes back to this word of God that God has revealed to us. And you know what he tells us? He tells us that he is the author and the finisher of faith. He tells us that he's the one who instigates it in the beginning. And after that instigation is put into play, he doesn't fail in his work. In other words, faith shall come to fruition. And ultimately, faith comes to fruition in a new heavens and in a new earth. So wherein lies the security of any believer this night? Does it lie within themselves? It lies within God and in, within God's word. And that's the foundational truth about every believer. Where God begins a good work, he doesn't fumble and stutter and get himself into a flummoxed situation. Where he begins it, he brings it to fruition. So if that's the way it is, the enemy of our souls cannot bring us down. But of course that needs qualifying as well. It is true that the enemy of the souls of believing people cannot destroy God's work of salvation. He has tried. He tried, we believe, even to the very utmost in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because the Garden of Gethsemane, we believe, wasn't just a physical assailing of Jesus. In fact, it wasn't really a... Well, I was going to say it wasn't a physical assailing of Jesus, but that would need qualification as well. But when he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death, we understand him to be saying he's pretty close to the edge. And the edge is death. 
But nobody's beating him. Nobody's punching him. Nobody's physically handling him in any way whatsoever. So the great question is this. What is it that's got him close to the edge? And the answer is this. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual warfare. And here's what I need to qualify the physicalness of it. Because the spiritual war, we are psychosomatic. We are not just bodies. We are souls and bodies. And that spiritual warfare for Jesus was so fierce that there is a physical manifestation of the difficulty. And that was the sweat was as a great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But my point, my point is this. There is this assault of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane that is spiritually rooted. And of course, we believe that just as during his 40 days of 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness after his baptism assaulted and assailed by the enemy of his soul as he was we believe that that was not quite as fierce and foundational as what happened in Gethsemane because the devil knows what Gethsemane is all about and it's a case of throwing wide open the floodgates of hell in a final attempt to get him off course but it, if it is possible let this cup from, pass from me Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And at the end of the day, it was the will of God that was done. And that will of God merged with the will of Christ, and he conquered all his enemies. Not just physical enemies, but spiritual enemies at all. And, and then there is a reward, and the reward is this. The price of redemption is paid for all of his people. So the devil is beaten. But that also needs qualification. Because although the devil is beaten and he knows he's beaten. And he knows he cannot destroy the faith of believers. He cannot destroy this work of salvation that belongs to the Father and to Christ. His next best attempt is. To throw as big a spanner in the works as he possibly can. The question is this, how does he do that? Well he does that in many, many ways. But the way we are coming across in this particular psalm this night is. The reviving of memories. Going way back into the past. And bringing sins in the past back to the fore so that they are there looming large before the eye of the believer here is David and David had a pretty topsy-turvy life David sinned in no short measure 
But at the same time, he was a, uh, he was a man after God's own heart. And you think, how can that be? How can you be a great rebel and a great sinner? And yet God describes you as a man after God's own heart. There's only one solution to that apparent contradiction. And that's to listen to the nature of God's covenant with the human race. And the nature of God's covenant with the human race is this. He makes an accommodation for sin. And that's at the heart of it. And you know we talk about condemnation and we talk about justification. Sinners are condemned because of their sin. The very opposite of condemnation is justification. It is to be declared by God to have nothing worthy of condemnation in you. It is to be declared by God that you have no sin whatsoever. It's a declaration. So here is the psalmist who tells us about his sin being great. But he's the same psalmist who because of the chesed love of God can be seen in the eyes of this God as never ever having sinned. You know, at times you have to pinch yourself about this kind of stuff. Because it just seems too good to be true. But it is the truth. How do we know it's the truth? Because I think it's the truth. Because I feel it's the truth. Because somebody else thinks it's the truth. None of these things, ultimately. Because it's in the book of God's revelation to us. That is why. And so one of the strategies of the enemy of our souls is this. To use our faculty of memory. Now memory is a very interesting thing. Because we only remember a fraction of our lives. And it's only a very, very small fraction of our lives that we do remember. You know, I have a friend, and he has, a, he has an astonishing memory. And very often, we, we, we talk often on the phone, and very often he'll say to me, Do you remember this? And I haven't got a clue. And then he'll say a little bit more, and I'll begin to think, Oh, now wait a minute, that has a kind of familiar ring to it. And on he goes, and by and by I'm thinking, oh yes, I do remember that. I have completely and utterly forgotten it. He hasn't. But he's managed to bring back, to some degree, to some extent, my uh, memory. The devil works on our memories. And you know, you can go through a period in your life as a believer where there's a peace and there's a tranquility and you're settled in your soul and you're savoring the blessedness of God and then the next day it's gone. And only is that gone, but the next day is a day of turmoil and of fear and of anxiety. Why? Because the enemy has invaded our thoughts with past things. And maybe something that you haven't thought of for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and even more. And it's there before your mind's eye, and it's absolutely devastating. And here's where it gets double devastating. When you're not in God's word, when you're alienated from God because you're not in his word, because you're in a kind of backslidden state, and you haven't got that to even out the ship And he can have you down. 
and he can have you almost out. But I do use the word almost in a very advised way because you can't be out if you are in Christ. You simply can't. But here is the psalmist and he's very honest about it. My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. They're back. They've been revived. They're before his mind's eye and they're a big problem to him. What does a believer do with that kind of problem? Well, this is what a believer ought to do with that kind of problem. The faith that is there alongside repentance that is the twin of faith comes in confession to the God of all grace and says, All that is true, but will you cover it in your mercy and in your love? And the chesed love of God is such that it covers. But we need to be reassured of that. How are we going to be reassured of that? We need to go to this word. Now the reason that we read that passage in Genesis this evening is this. Because memory comes into the equation in Egypt for Joseph's brothers. You remember what uh, Joseph's brothers uh, did and said in, uh, in Egypt. In Genesis chapter 42 and at verse, at verse 22 I think it is, this is what we read. I'll read from verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, listen to this, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now that's very interesting stuff. Do you know, if my calculations are correct, from the time Joseph left his father's home to this point in time, the point in time that we've been reading about in Scripture, 22 years had gone by. Now it's not that these brothers hadn't thought about what they're doing. I don't think that for one second. But they had calculated, and this was their calculation. The loss of Joseph, or the apparent loss of Joseph, will not go down well with our old father. But he'll get over it. By and by he'll get over it. And you know, we still operate at that level nowadays. People will often say, time is a healer. I think we have to be very, very careful when we say that time is a healer. Now, there is a truth in that. But there are certain situations where you wouldn't say that. For example, at the death of somebody, when a family is reeling, you would never ever say time's a healer. It's not the moment. It's not the time. It's not the place. But that's the way these men were thinking. He'll get over it. Except he didn't get over it. 
He never came to terms with it in any way, shape, or form. But that's not the only point. They knew he never came to terms with it. And I wonder how they managed for 22 solid years never to say a word to their old father. You know what? Do you know what, Dad? He might just still be alive. But they never did. And that tells us something about their hearts. That tells us something about their souls. You know what Jeremiah says? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that is the way it is. Jeremiah is basically saying there that... You know, he goes on to say, The heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah is basically saying, I don't know who I am and I don't know what I'm capable of. But you know what? That passage of scripture goes on to say this, I, the Lord, search the heart. Isn't that a phenomenal thing? That this God who knows the heart of sinners that are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked saves such people. Christ died for the ungodly whilst we were still in our sins. These are astounding insights. These are astounding uh, insights. And so the brothers of Joseph after 22 years are standing firm. And they're not going to give the father any benefit of the slightest doubt. But here they are now. And memories are fresh. And memories are revived. They're 22 years old. They've mastered them. They've managed them. They've conquered them. Or have they? Do you know when they're saying to Joseph, the Joseph that they don't realise is their own brothers, we are honest men. There's a bit of truth in that. They weren't spies. But nor were they honest men. They were deceitful. They were untruthful. They were liars. That's what they were. And it's all coming back to haunt them now. But you know what? We're all in this boat. Every last one of us. We are deceitful. We are dishonest. And we are liars at so many levels. And it doesn't matter who we are. It will come back. Now let me qualify that. On the day of all reckoning... The book shall be opened and everything shall be to the fore whether we have done good or evil. It's all coming back. And if that is not enough to make us tremble I don't know what will make us tremble. But what can stop our trembling is this the chesed love of God that's found in this verse of this particular song. Because the psalmist does say, My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. 
After thy mercy think on me, and for thy goodness great. That is our only hope. And you know, as we have gone a long life's journey, there are many people who have taken their consciences that have disturbed them greatly concerning particular sins at one stage of their journey. But they've mastered them. They've buried them. They're overboard. And they've gone. But they've not gone forever. They've not gone forever. They may rise in this world. And a troubled conscience may turn to Christ. Whilst we are in this world, there's opportunity to do something about it all. But if they do not rise in this world, they most certainly will rise in the world that is to come. Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Do you know what the rich man was told? Remember, remember, remember. And that's the one thing he doesn't want to do, but he's got no options about it now. He does remember. But there's no opportunity of getting it sorted now. Whilst we are on mercy's ground, we have opportunity of sorting out the messes that we get ourselves into. And so I would say to those who haven't fled to Christ this night, flee to him with all your fleeing. And I would say to those who are in Christ, whose faith may be really wobbling, remember where your security lies. Your faith is a gift that he gave you. And his promise is that he will not falter and he will not fail in his great work of salvation. That is why we have to bow all before him once again this night in sheer worship and in adoration. Amen. Let's conclude by singing in the same song, Psalm 139a, and it's at verse 16. Psalm 139a, and at verse 16, it's page 181 of the Psalter. And all the days that I should live which you ordained for me were written in your book, O Lord, before they came to be. O God, how precious are your thoughts. I scan them from afar, and as I seek to grasp them all, how numberless they are. We'll sing verses 18 to 16 of Psalm 139a, and all the days that I should live.
now may grace, mercy, and peace from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest on and abide with each one, both now and forevermore. Amen.